Hey, folks, welcome to the Law of Self-Defense ongoing coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. I've received a lot of inquiries about one of the charges against Kyle Rittenhouse in particular, and that's the unlawful gun possession by someone under 18 charge. It's count six in the criminal complaint against him. While it's merely a misdemeanor, it does appear to be the only one of the charges still pending against Kyle for which there's reason to believe a fair jury might return a guilty verdict. Such a verdict, in my professional legal opinion, would be a travesty of justice, and that's what I'd like to dive into here. Specifically, why the gun charge ought to be dismissed by Judge Schroeder outright, never even considered by the jury, and Kyle no longer subject to the risk of conviction on that count. For reasons I've written on extensively elsewhere, the prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse has effectively presented no substantive evidence in court that is inconsistent with the legal defense of self-defense, and that in a case where the prosecution bears the burden of disproving self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. By the way, for all my other collected content on Rittenhouse, you can always find that at lawofselfdefense.com slash Rittenhouse. The primary legal defense raised by Kyle is self-defense. That legal defense of self-defense is applicable directly to the charge of first-degree intentional homicide of Anthony Huber. That's count three of the criminal complaint, and it comes with a mandatory life sentence if convicted. And it's directly applicable to the attempted first-degree intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. That's count four in the criminal complaint, good for a sentence of up to 60 years. The legal defense of self-defense is also applicable, albeit indirectly, to the charge of first-degree reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum. That's count one, good for 60 years. And first-degree reckless endangering of unknown male, jump kick man, that's count five and it's good for 12 years, in that a justified use of force against an intended target is by law necessary and reasonable and therefore not reckless. And both of those men were actively attacking Rittenhouse and therefore presumably intended targets of his use of force. It's somewhat more ambiguous and really, I mean fact-sensitive, to what extent the legal defense of self-defense covers the charge of first-degree reckless endangering with respect to journalist Richard McGinnis. That's count two, good for 12 years. McGinnis was somewhat behind Rosenbaum and arguably endangered by the gunfire that Kyle put into Rosenbaum with his AR-15. Of course, criminal recklessness requires that the risk created be an unjustified risk, a justified risk is not sufficient. So to illustrate, swerving and running over some nuns because you were adjusting your radio would be an unjustified creation of risk. Swerving and running over some nuns because the alternative was running over a bunch of babies and strollers, <clears throat> well, that may create the same danger to the nuns, but be considered justified under those different circumstances. Certainly, McGinnis was downrange of Kyle's gunfire when the 17-year-old shot the murderously charging Rosenbaum, and therefore in some danger from Kyle's gunfire, but that's true in virtually every defensive gun use. There's almost always somebody downrange. Defensive gun uses don't tend to occur in a square range with a solid and secure backstop. So the relevant question in the case of the McGinnis reckless endangerment charge will be whether the risk created towards McGinnis was unjustified and therefore reckless. It's possible to argue scenarios in which a gun use might qualify as lawful self-defense with respect to the intended target, but also as reckless conduct towards some bystander. 
The state might argue, for example, that Kyle could have angled the gun in such a way so as to still defend himself without endangering McGinnis. And so the danger to McGinnis was arguably, therefore, unjustified and criminally reckless. In fact, I would argue that this is precisely what Kyle did, whether intentionally or not. The evidence I've seen is that the shots to Rosenbaum were fired with the barrel of the rifle angled downwards towards the lunging Rosenbaum and not with the rifle horizontal to the ground, which would be more likely to endanger people downrange like McGinnis. But now we're in the realm of fact-finding, and that properly falls within the province of the jury. So to the extent that the state has failed to come even close to disproving self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt, which is their burden, that solidly addresses count one and counts three through five, and arguably also count two, the McGinnis reckless endangerment count, these are all the felony charges against Kyle. So that's a good thing for the defense. Count seven, the last of the counts, the curfew violation charge, punishable only by a ticket, was dismissed by the court yesterday. That still leaves Kyle, however, with one remaining charge. Count six, the possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18 charge. That's under statute 948.60A2. By the way, every statute and jury instruction I'll reference here is linked in the text version of today's content, which again, you can find at lawofselfdefense.com slash Rittenhouse. Now, This gun possession charge is a mere misdemeanor charge, and if convicted, Kyle is punishable by up to nine months in jail, presumably lessened by any time served prior to trial. This gun charge has indeed become a sticky wicket, largely because of the alleged ambiguity created by the Wisconsin legislature in drafting that statute, by the failure of the relevant Wisconsin criminal jury instructions to accurately reflect the plain statutory language, and by the fecklessness of the prosecution in this case. Also, because Kyle's claim of self-defense, compelling against the felony charges against him, is irrelevant as a defense to this particular misdemeanor charge. There is no self-defense justification for willfully violating a gun possession law. Now, some of you may be thinking that an excuse defense of necessity or lesser harms might apply here. It would not, for reasons I'll explain below. So this gun possession statute, the relevant part of 948.60 reads, and I'll quote here, any person under 18 years of age who possesses or goes armed with a dangerous weapon is guilty of a class A misdemeanor, close quote. Well, if that was the only statutory language that applies to Kyle, it's pretty much an open and shut conviction. He was admittedly under 18, and he was in possession of an AR-15-style rifle, which certainly qualifies under Wisconsin law as a dangerous weapon. Uh, Paragraph 1 of that same statute says dangerous weapon means any firearm. Indeed, the jury instruction that has been drafted with respect to 948.60A2, and this is jury instruction 2176, Possession of a dangerous weapon by a child. Again, that jury instruction is linked in the text version of today's content. It specifically reflects this apparent simplicity of construction, defining for the jury the elements that the state must prove beyond a reasonable doubt in order to find guilt. And there's only three. One, the defendant possessed an object. Two, the object was a dangerous weapon. Three, the defendant had not attained the age of 18 years at the time. Again, if this is the entire analysis of guilt, Kyle would seem a pretty open and shut case. He was in possession of an object. The object qualifies as a dangerous weapon, and he had not attained the age of 18 years. But that is not 
the entire legal analysis. There is more, and it is found later in that same statute, 948.60, in paragraph 3C. That section reads, in relevant part, quote, This section, meaning the entire statute, the gun possession statute being applied against Kyle, this section applies only to a person under 18 years of age who possesses or is armed with a rifle or shotgun if the person is not in compliance with, and it mentions two other statutes, 29304 and 29593. So unless Kyle was not in compliance with 29304 and 29593, well, then the gun possession statute would seem to not apply to him at all. That is, he would be legally exempt from the provisions of that statute. So what are 29304 and 29593? Well, the second of those, 29593, sets out the conditions that must be met to be certified to engage in certain hunting activities. With respect to these conditions, the state correctly points out that Kyle has not met any of those conditions. and Therefore, they argue Kyle's not in compliance with 29593. Okay, fair enough. The first defense counter argument here could be that 29593 applies to hunting activities and Kyle was not engaged in hunting activities. And therefore, 29593 ought not to apply to his circumstances at all. Perhaps a stronger counter-argument by the defense, however, is that the plain reading of the gun possession statute of that paragraph 3C says it applies only if the person is not in compliance with 29304 and 29593. It does not read 29304 or 29593. So even if Kyle can be said to be not in compliance with the certification statute 29593, the question remains, was he also not in compliance with 29304? So we have to take a closer look at 29304, and we see that it's also a hunting-related statute, but one that involves restrictions on hunting and use of firearms by persons under 16 years of age. Well, you may be thinking, what's going on here? Wait a minute. How can Kyle be not in compliance with a statute that applies only to persons under 16 years of age? He was, after all, 17 years old at the time of these events. And that's precisely the position of the defense here. They argue that Kyle is legally exempt from the provisions of 29304, period, because he falls outside the statute's eight range. And if he's exempt, he can't be not in compliance. It simply doesn't apply to him. And if he can't be not in compliance with 29304, well, then he's exempt from the gun possession statute. Unlawful possession of a dangerous weapon because of the requirement that it applies only to people who are not compliant with 29304. Now, the state's counterargument to this plain reading of the statutory language is that, well, the legislature titled 948.60, the gun possession law, they titled it possession of a dangerous weapon by a person under 18. So they must have meant some application to persons under 18. After all, Kyle was admittedly under 18 at the time of the events. We may not understand exactly what the legislature was trying to get at, the state's arguing, but surely they were getting at something. And therefore, we should ignore the plain statutory language and subject Kyle to criminal sanction under this statute. In effect, the state's argument here is pay no attention to the plain reading of the statutory language behind the curtain because I'm the great and powerful assistant DA Oz. 
Really, it's ridiculous. And ridiculous ought to have no role in a court of law where criminal sanctions and personal liberty are at stake. Also, Assistant DA Jim Krause is engaged in some hand-waving to the court, arguing that, hey, this is just a fact question and fact questions ought to go to the jury. Well, it's true that fact questions ought to go to the jury. So that's an argument that on its face is always attractive to any trial judge. More importantly, Assistant DA Krause knows what go to the jury means. It means the jury gets the Wisconsin criminal jury instruction on 948.60A2, and that jury instruction, 2176, says not one word about the 3C exception to that gun possession statute, makes no reference whatever to 29304, and if plainly relied on by the jury, will certainly result in a conviction that would appear contrary to the plain reading of the relevant statutory language. In truth, this is not a fact question at all. This is a question of law, and questions of law do not fall within the province of the jury. They fall within the province of the judge. It is for Judge Schroeder in this case, not the jury, to decide how the law applies to the facts as those facts are determined by the jury. And in this case, the facts on the gun possession are undisputed. It is the law in dispute, and that dispute ought properly be settled by the judge, simply giving the jury the standard jury instruction that fails to reflect the actual statutory language would be a judicial travesty and injustice. Now, trial courts are generally extremely hesitant to stray away from the standardized jury instructions for the perfectly good reason that doing so tends to get their verdicts reversed. That said, it's also the duty of the trial court to ensure that the instructions given the jury accurately reflect the law to be applied to the facts as the jury finds those facts to have been proven or disproven. So Judge Schroeder is not necessarily locked in to the oversimplistic jury instruction of 2176. I've heard rumor that he's actually requested the state and the defense to draft their own versions of jury instructions for that gun possession charge, count six, and submit them to the court for review. And indeed, folks, this is how jury instructions used to be done routinely back in the day before there was wide use of standardized jury instructions. If the jury gets instructions that accurately reflect the statutory language, I think Kyle's in good shape, even on this gun possession charge, count six in the criminal complaint. If he gets the current standardized jury instructions that fail to accurately reflect the plain language of statute 948.60, then an unjust misdemeanor conviction on that gun possession charge seems almost certain. I also wanted to touch upon the necessity defense or the doctrine of lesser evils, as it's sometimes called, because I've received a lot of inquiries on that as well. Can't it be argued that Kyle's possession of the rifle, even of unlawful, was a relatively small harm relative to the very large harm had he been unable to defend himself from multiple deadly force attackers? And Perhaps, but that's not how the necessity defense works with respect to this gun charge on the facts of this case. The necessity defense may excuse the violation of a law when doing so is compelled by a necessity of the moment to avoid a greater harm. So imagine you physically shove someone very hard, normally a simple battery subject to criminal sanction, but you did it out of the necessity of the moment of moving them out of the path of an oncoming truck. 
There, the necessity of the moment may excuse your plain, simple battery for the purpose of having avoided a much greater harm. In the case of Kyle, had he been charged by Rosenbaum and suddenly discovered an unfamiliar AR-15 at his feet, snatched it up and defended himself with it, that transient possession of the dangerous weapon would have a very viable necessity defense that could be raised. That's not what Kyle was doing, however. He was not merely in possession of the rifle transiently and for a compelling necessity of the moment. He was in possession of the rifle the entire time he was in Kenosha, even when not under attack. The necessity defense applies to a compelling greater interest in the moment. It does not apply to speculative need in the future. So on the facts of this case, the necessity defense is of no use as a legal defense against the gun possession charge, count six, brought against Kyle. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you on this topic today. Remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.